Good evening. Biden slams the GOP for wanting to defund the FBI. The government ignores another cancer cluster. New York State demands credit card companies track gun purchases. Solitary confinement and torture in New York City jails. And housing court disobeys the law. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, died today after a long illness. Through a statement, Russian President Vladimir Putin expressed deep condolences over Gorbachev's death. In seven years, the Soviet premier, Gorbachev unleashed reforms of the creaking Soviet state, resulting in its ultimate collapse. The changes led to the end of the Cold War, freeing Eastern European states to join the West NATO Defense Alliance, in a sense lighting a fuse that exploded this year in a war between Ukraine, a former Soviet Republic, and Russia. Gorbachev won the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize for his role in ending the Cold War, but he was widely despised at home. In 1997, he resorted to making a TV ad for Pizza Hut to earn money for his charitable foundation. Mikhail Gorbachev was 91. In news from the war, Ukraine claimed to have destroyed bridges and ammunition depots and pounded command posts in a surge of fighting in the Russian-occupied South. It's maybe the long-awaited counteroffensive to turn the tide of war. Russia said it inflicted heavy casualties in return. Ukrainian authorities sidestepped talk of a major counteroffensive over the past couple of days, possibly to conceal their intentions. The war has turned into a stalemate over the past months, with casualties and destruction mounting and the population bearing the brunt of the suffering during relentless shelling in the east and south. The fighting complicates what could be a treacherous trip from Kyiv to Europe's largest nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia by an inspection team from the UN's Atomic Energy Agency. Nikopol, a city just across the Dnieper from the plant, again came under a barrage of heavy shelling, with a bus station, stores, and a children's library damaged. There were also reports of missiles being fired. And in national news, at a rally in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, President Joe Biden today railed against the MAGA Republicans in Congress, who he says have refused to condemn the January 6, 2021 assault on the Capitol. Biden also sees on comments from allies of former President Donald Trump calling for defunding the FBI since it executed a search warrant at Trump's Florida residence. So let me say this to my MAGA Republican friends in Congress. Don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. Don't tell me. Can't do it. For God's sake, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Look. You're either on the side of a mob the side of the police. You can't be pro-law enforcement and pro-insurrection. You can't be a party of law and order and call the people who attacked the police on January 6th patriots. You can't do it. What are we teaching our children? It's just that simple. And now it's sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI threatening the life of law enforcement agents and their families for simply carrying out the law and doing their job. Look, 
I want to say this as clear as I can. There's no place in this country, no place, for endangering the lives of law enforcement. No place. None, never, period. I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. Last week, Biden likened Republican ideology to semi-fascism. He's set to deliver a democracy-focused speech on Thursday in Philadelphia. The White House has said will make clear who is fighting for Democratic values. In the upcoming midterm elections, Democrats believe Pennsylvania is their strongest opportunity to flip a Senate seat currently held by Republicans. In environmental news, a coalition of environmental groups protesting the growing list of cancer-causing pollutants in the environment is meeting to rally in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, September 20th at Freedom Plaza. The coalition is known as Scientists, Activists, and Families for Cancer-Free Environments, or SAFE. A co-founder of the group is Susan Wind, who discovered her community near Charlotte, North Carolina, had been secretly turned into a dump by Duke Energy, a privately owned power utility. The state approved the company's use of waste from coal-burning power plants instead of soil for construction throughout the region. That coal waste can cause cancer. A resident of suburban Mooresville, Susan Wind discovered the use of the waste product in the environment when her daughter contracted thyroid cancer and she discovered the existence of a cluster of similar cancer cases. She spoke today with the news. Where I lived, it was just pretty much the same story that happens to all of us, where someone gets cancer and then more people get cancer and they're all in a defined area, whether it's a neighborhood, a school, a zip code. And that's usually how you start figuring out something's wrong. So when my daughter was sick and I found out my neighbors were sick and friends were sick. It was just so much cancer and I had no idea what it could be. I was obviously not aware of what was in our area. And after about two years of a full on investigation, and when I say investigation, I mean speaking with hundreds and hundreds of people who are from the area originally, this is Lake Norman, North Carolina, and actually digging up records back paper trails from the 1990s found out that there was a lot of coal ash all on the property of where this steam station was right near our home. The state of North Carolina and the utility company had pretty much agreed to reuse that coal ash as structural fill to build businesses. It was put in yards. It was put next to schools roads. It was basically used instead of soil for decades while the building boom took place in our area. When I learned about that, then you start looking at what coal ash is and researching how the EPA even says it causes cancer and dangerous to ingest or to inhale. Obviously, as a parent, I was very concerned and tried to get help from government. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to do and the people you're supposed to trust. I learned the hard way that they're not going to protect the people. They're going to protect the polluters. Pretty much this is a problem, not just with coal ash and with my story. This is the same story with everybody's polluter in their towns across America. And that's why we're all coming together in Washington, D.C. to show, you know, it's just not one town and one person being dismissed. Nobody can prove it because the system is set up to fail people like us. It's set up to protect the polluters. What do you mean by the hard way? You learn the hard way. If I would have known that there is 
pretty much minimal regulation when it comes to so many of these pollutants. And if it was disclosed to us that our town used this instead of soil, I would not have moved to a town like that or any town. People are not being told what's in their environment. They're finding out the hard way when they watch their kids or loved ones get cancer. And why isn't there a way to get some sort of uh, justice for these kind of things? Why is that so difficult? You have a lot of issues. There's not a lot of public health studies when it comes to contaminants, as you know. It's up to me, which I actually did fund studies in my town. I had one published. There's another one being published. It takes years. I had to raise the money by myself. There's a statute of limitations in most states. It's, I think, usually three years in most states. So after those years, it's up. The corporations bank on this, that you're never going to prove it. You're not going to get the funds to do proper studies. And the fact that the government pretty much puts them first and they're paid science first, it fails. It doesn't work for anybody like me. It doesn't work. And you went to the government and you found you had problems way up to the highest levels of the government, didn't you? I started at the local level, went to the state level, and pretty much it was one excuse after another and took it all the way up to the federal government. The CDC is one part of the broken system. They pretty much they have something defined as cancer cluster on their website. They don't even follow their own definition. And the states pretty much refuse to say the words cancer cluster because it will scare people. It will hurt property values. They're not even admitting there's a cancer cluster or a problem. And that's the first step. You have to admit there's a problem to go try to solve the problem. And they refuse to admit it. And one last thing about the CDC is there's something called Trevor's Law that was signed back in 2016, which was supposed to protect and help communities if they had a suspected cancer cluster and they needed assistance on different levels. That law pretty much has never, ever been followed. And I can send you documentation on that. Mm -hmm. I believe you. And uh, so just to wrap up the story, a uh, sad story, where, where do things go from here? We're all coming together on September 20th in Washington, D.C. for a march starting at Freedom Plaza, marching to the EPA headquarters. And I'm hoping because we have evidence, a lot of toxic evidence, that these stories, it's not just one or two. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories from kids with cancer, firefighters all getting cancer, their gears loaded with cancer-causing contaminants, people in military bases that were contaminated, all different types of populations across this country. And this is just the beginning to show we have a problem and expose the problem because all of us just keep getting dismissed. This is the beginning, I think, of hopefully something that somebody needs to wake up and change the broken system. Susan Wind is a resident of an area impacted by pollution who discovered the risk when her daughter was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. A coalition of environmental groups protesting the growing list of cancer-causing pollutants in the environment is meeting to rally in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, September 20th at Freedom Plaza. And closer to home, New York City and California pension officials are calling for three top credit card companies to add 6,000 gun shops to a system that tracks purchases. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander, who oversees pension funds, has filed shareholder resolutions at MasterCard and American Express, demanding their boards explain why they haven't added a new merchant category code for firearms purchases. Speaking with city and state officials today, Lander says tracking gun sales could have helped stop mass shootings. 
the Aurora Movie Theater shooter used a MasterCard to purchase $11,000 worth of weapons and military gear in the six weeks leading up to the shooting, including from standalone gun stores. And the Pulse shooter, who killed 49 people, also used a MasterCard to purchase more than $26,000 in firearms and ammunition, including from standalone gun stores. These merchant category codes are set by an organization called the International Organization for Standardization, or ISO, um, and that happens through a vote that includes the credit card companies. Amalgamated Bank brought a proposal last year and are bringing a proposal again to the ISO to create a merchant category code for standalone gun stores. Unfortunately, MasterCard, American Express, and Visa have failed to support this simple, practical, life-saving tool, and the time has come for them to do so. We are united here to urge credit card companies to get on board with this simple, practical step to prevent gun violence and to save lives. New York City Public Advocate Jumani Williams added it's not enough to take guns off the streets. We would be remiss if we did not discuss the guns coming in in the first place. There are no guns built in Brooklyn, in the city at all, in New York. There are no guns built here. They are coming in from other places. And I have to ask the credit card companies themselves, why would you not want to do this? It's preventative and it holds people accountable. What, could tell, what can you tell us as why you wouldn't do this when you do it everywhere else except for the thing that causes death and carnage? This can help track so much. The mass shootings, as was discussed, because there is a pattern in what people generally buy leading up to it. I don't want to leave up the handgun violence that is killing black and brown people every single day in this city, in this state, in this country. What we've seen is gun dealers, quote unquote, lose handguns all of the time, buy them again, lose them again, buy them again. This can also help us track that. We have to use every tool in the toolbox to protect everyone. Amalgamated Bank is the largest union-owned bank in the United States, majority owned by an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union. One of the bank's vice presidents is Maura Kinney. There's a merchant category code for shoe sign stores. There's a merchant category code for bowling alleys. There's a merchant category code for wig and toupee shops. Yet the 6,000 standalone gun dealers in America there's no unique merchant category code for them. If we had one, banks and credit card companies could use our existing reporting systems to flag things like straw purchases. If you see guns or uh, something purchased at a gun dealer with a subsequent equal or similar amount credited to the account. Multiple sales, when a buyer tries to evade local regulations about weights by engaging in successive purchases in multiple retailers. And then, of course, you've heard a lot today about domestic terrorism and having, having a merchant category code might help us alert law enforcement in advance of a mass shooting. Moore Kinney is a vice president of Amalgamated Bank. 
United States gun rights activists say new codes could open the door to unauthorized police surveillance. A MasterCard representative said it is reviewing the issue and that it aims to support all legal purchases while protecting the privacy and decisions of individual cardholders. And you're listening to the news with Paul DiRienzo, available daily at pauldirienzo.com. City Comptroller Brad Lander said Monday the city won't meet its 2027 deadline for shutting down the notorious jail complex on Rikers Island and building four replacement facilities. New jails in four boroughs are part of the city's $8 billion plan to close Rikers, launched in 2019 under former Mayor Bill de Blasio, remaining largely in the design phase. The current Rikers population is 5,700 detainees, well above the roughly 3,500 that the new jails will be able to house. The mayor took issue with Lander's comments during a press availability at City Hall. He said, we're going to follow the law. The law calls for the jails to be closed. Meanwhile, Carlina Rivera, the chair of the council's criminal justice committee, says she'll hold a hearing next month on a pending bill to ban solitary confinement in city jails. The legislation would make it illegal to confine someone in his cell for more than eight hours in a 24-hour period. The mayor took issue with the bill, despite the fact that there is a state bill that says pretty much the same thing. Adams addressed Rivera, saying, what do you expect us to do? Here's the question that no one is asking everyone who's critiquing Molina. What do you do with repeated dangerous people who are in jail? So if, if, if the councilwoman wants to ban these things that she's talking about, and I don't believe in solitary confinement, but if she wants to ban these things, the question I need everyone to ask, which no one seems to ask, that's critique jail. People who are repeatedly dangerous, over 80% of the inmates who are in punitive segregation are from attacking other inmates, other inmates. And so if they're saying, don't take a person who commits a crime on another inmate or a staffer, don't take them out of general population, then we're saying, why are we arresting people in the city? General population is our, street, our streets. And so if the mission is, if someone commits a crime, we don't confine them, then they need to say that. Say they don't believe anyone should ever go to jail for committing a predatory crime. Rivera has said she supports the mayor and claims conditions at Rikers have generally improved, but not everyone in the activist community agrees. The campaign organizer for the New York Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement, known as Solitary, is Victor Pate. He says Mayor Adams has been a disappointment and solitary has been denounced internationally as torture. Solitary confinement is torture. Our UN General Assembly mandatory minimum standard for the treatment of people in prison and jail says no one should be held in any long-term solitary confinement, nor should they be tortured. That separation should be humanitarian and it should be transformative. And it should not be isolation in a cell for 23 to 24 hours a day. We do not need solitary confinement because it does not address, nor does it make better. Treatment and alternatives to people's behaviors are a better approach. In addition to that, the whole Solitary Confinement Act, which was passed in 2021 and has now been implemented in our New York State, is applicable not only to state, but also to local jails. Rikers Island is considered a local jail. He is in violation of the Hope Act 
as well as in violation of the UN General Assembly that says nobody should be treated, tortured in any type of way or fashion. What's uh, going on in Rikers right now? How are they in violation of the law, in your opinion? They're in violation of the law by keeping people in an isolated, solitary condition and keeping them locked in the cell for 23 to 24 hours a day. They're in violation of the HALT Act because the HALT Act says that people should be given transformative out-of-cell time that will include them having opportunities to be together that will allow them to not be isolated alone by themselves. And he's in violation of all of that because they're still in long-term solitary confinement. They're still isolating people. And they're still keeping people in separation for 22 to 24 hours a day in their cell and not giving any meaningful interaction with other human beings, which is what hope calls for. If you're in violation of a law like that and you're the mayor and run a jail, what could happen to you? Then there needs to be court order that directs them to cease all forms of solitary confinement as it is and fully and correctly implement the whole bill as it was passed to be and that how it should be carried out. And people should not just be left in their cells at 22 hours a day. And if they are found in violation, then there should be some type of monetary damages for the people and for what they have suffered. Victor Pate is campaign organizer for the New York Campaign for Alternatives to Isolated Confinement. Meanwhile, the federal government hasn't ruled out a takeover of the Troubled Island Jail. A dozen inmates have died at Rikers this year, many by suicide. And finally, Wednesday morning, tenants and elected officials are gathering in front of Queens Housing Court to speak out against what they say is the state court's outrageous policy to continue to deny to thousands of eligible tenants their right to counsel. A tenant leader with Met Council on Housing is Ayelisa Fernandez. If you qualify for it, you're supposed to get the right to a lawyer. However, right now, New York City isn't following it. How do they get around that? I don't know. But basically, they had an overwhelming amount of cases because of the pandemic. They just want to get through it as quickly as possible, from my understanding. What they're doing is, if you don't have a lawyer, well, pretty much screw you, even though you could be entitled to one. We just need to get your case seen. This is your court day, and it is what it is. Let's keep going. Even though you could qualify for a lawyer, they're not really being mindful that of your rights. And mm-hmm. as a citizen, I have an issue with that because I don't know the law. I don't. So that's a big issue. What was it like before, and how did that change under the law? You didn't really have a right to counsel, so you either had to get a lawyer on your own, which is a lot of money. So if you're poor, that's not going to happen. Or you had to represent your own self. And when you had to go in and represent your own self, you just don't know how to navigate the system. There's data that demonstrates that tenants who were represented by lawyers were about 75% more likely to remain in their homes than if they represented them own self. So what's happening tomorrow in Queens? On Wednesday, we're going to have a rally in regards to my own court case, 
and we're going to be speaking about the rights to counsel because it was a challenge for me to get a lawyer. I couldn't get a lawyer through Legal Aid Services. I couldn't get a lawyer through Legal Aid Queens. It was just challenging. And if it wasn't because friends in the community helped me to get one, I wouldn't even have one today. And right now, the way that my case is going, it's like a never-ending case. I am not sure that the next time the landlord files for um, a court case, if I'm going to have a lawyer present. What is the demand tomorrow in front of the Queen's Courthouse, right? Queen's Housing Court. To slow down the cases and ensure that everyone who qualifies for a right to counsel, so a right to a lawyer, that that's respected. To now move forward with a case, if someone does qualify for a lawyer, to now move forward with the case if there's no one available. They should slow down the cases and ensure that people have legal representation if they qualify for that. Another demand is to pass the good call because that will ensure that landlords, like in my case, they don't just bring us to court over nothing, but there's actually a valid cause. And the last thing is ensuring that their housing voucher is passed so that folks can have affordable housing. Activists are also demanding full funding for the Housing Access Voucher Program to give tenants grants to stave off evictions. And that's the news for Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. The news was written, anchored, and produced by myself, Paul Durienzo. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com or your favorite podcasting service. You can email me at pdurienzo.com.